Amen. Hey, don't forget to press record on my laptop, just in case. All right, well, good morning. Glad to see you here. If you guys would open up to uh, Luke chapter 24, we're going to get right to it. We'll actually be in Luke 22 and 24 uh, in that area, and um, it should be, uh, should be great. <clears throat> Love that song. Uh, I haven't, uh, I had never heard that song before. It's sung by Derek Webb, I believe. Um, and uh, just got, it's amazing sometimes how things come together, because I don't really talk with the people who put the songs together and how it all matches up. And um, the sound is usually a different flavor every week, but the words are actually um, typically right on. It's pretty awesome. All right, we're going to be in Luke 24:35. We're talking about communion today. And I know that it uh, sounds like such an amazing, exciting sermon. And I hopefully will be able to keep your attention, if not... I'll just do some weird monkey tricks and keep you engaged so you don't fall too deeply asleep. But we're going to start in Luke 24, 35, which is a verse that just kind of blew my mind. I didn't really read it, I guess, or, or identify it when I've read this passage before, but for whatever reason, it, it, it stuck to me. It's the key verse in our sacred assembly booklet, of which I think there's still a couple copies in the back. So if you don't have that for future reference... And just to uh, take notes in or to have for your community groups, you should grab one. Luke 24, 35, this is in a larger context of uh, Jesus basically walking with two disciples. And it's the end of their encounter. And they've just gone back to the 11 disciples to report what they saw and experienced. And they say this in Luke 24, 35, Then they told what had happened on the road. And how he, Jesus, was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now typically in our church we go straight through the Bible, verse by verse, hit all the stuff that's confusing or seemingly irrelevant, and occasionally we preach a topical series. And I'm not a huge fan of topical series, but um, occasionally we feel like they're important to do dependent upon what the church needs and what the culture needs at the time. And so that's why we find ourselves in the middle of this series between James, where we went straight through, and Habakkuk, where we're going. Yes, that's the book in the Bible. I'll challenge you to go find it, but we will study it. And we find ourselves now in the fourth week of a five-week series called Sacred Assembly. And the overarching purpose of this series is this is our effort to explain as according to Scripture, what the Bible says the church is and what makes a good one. And good one is in quotes because there's lots of ways we can identify good and bad churches in our mind. We want to see basically what does a church have to do and what is it in order to actually be a church and when does it stop being a church if it does not do certain things. And so maybe even more than that, I think this is the effort of the elders uh, of the church to declare publicly and to you is that we are more concerned with being biblical above all else than we are with being cool or relevant or attractive or engaged or what have you. Not that those are bad things in and of themselves, but when that collides with being biblical, we'll stick with being biblical. And in fact, we believe that the best way to be relevant to this world that is lost and in need of a Savior, is to be biblical. Now, that doesn't mean that we pretend like it's 1950, 
and, or 1975, or as I've said before, it could be 80 anything, and I would love it because I think the 80s rock, and that's my time, and I've got t-shirts to prove it and all kinds of things, but it's not that time anymore. We're in a different culture. We, we see and view and experience things differently, but the Bible's never changed. And so we need to do things like it's still the 50s A.D. in some sense, and that is in the sense that Scripture says we should be doing. And so that's our whole point here. And so to that end, in week one, if you've been here or not, in that series we tried to define in 45 minutes as best we could what the church is according to Scripture. That it's more than just an activity or an event that we gather to. There's a sacredness to our assembly, and it is ultimately the same people of God that he has been gathering throughout the Old Testament, the people who are set apart, who are loved particularly by him, the family of God, who believe in Jesus Christ, his son who saved them, and who experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit unlike any other group does. That was week one. Week two was we tried to answer the question of why do we preach? Why do we always focus on a, why do we have a sermon? What's the point? And the point was that God's a preacher. He's always been a preacher. That he sent preachers to declare things good, bad to his people and to the world. And then Jesus came, the word of God, who preached and told his disciples to preach. And they continue to preach. And we preach today the gospel, the truth of God. Because it is our belief that it's the word of God, as he has always worked before, that brings new life, that is the power. It's not in our cleverness. It's not in our grand marketing schemes. It is in declaring his word plain and simple. And so we do that boldly, without apology, and it is very countercultural. And then in week three, last week, we talked about authority, that God has basically given his church structure. He has called particular men according to Scripture, to lead his church, ultimately to protect the purity of what we do here, to make sure that what we're doing is honoring to God and glorifying to God. And these men are not tyrants, but these men are servants. These men are to live like Jesus, which means they will be be beaten up more than others, but they'll also make judgments and take responsibility for more that they will be held account to or by God for So they will stand before God and say, these are the judgments you made. And so there is a weight to it, a weight that we fully accept, but a weight that is big. And we take responsibility for that. And then the fourth week, we talk about what I've come to understand is the zenith, the highest point, the pinnacle, the moment that all moments lead to in our gathering here, which is communion. You go, seriously? That's what this all points to. It should sound a little strange to you, because for me, even, you know, Mr. Pastor Man, studying all these things, right, I come to a place where like, wow, maybe for the first time in my life, this week or a couple weeks prior to studying for this, I began to see communion in a completely different way than I maybe have ever seen it before in my life. Now, for those who don't know what communion is, just really give you the basic, bare bones of it. Every week, and it's not every week everywhere, but in our church, we have these conversations as we planted. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to do these things? 
we take communion every week. And we begin the service by worshiping through song. Some better, worse, more, less than others, right? We worship through song. Then we worship through a sermon. This is worship. It is worship for me to speak it. It's worship for you to hear it. It is worship. It's all part of our worship. We were set apart to worship God. That's our place in this world. And then we worship in song again. And as we worship in song, responding to what we've heard in God's word, we come up and we worship through communion. It is part of our worship. It is the most important part of our worship, I would argue. We come up and you take a little piece of bread, which really isn't unleavened bread. Sorry, it's not matzah, but it is, seems like it, I know. Okay, you take a piece of bread, you dip it in some grape-derived juice, whatever it is, and then you partake. You partake of it. It's a meal, if you will. And my concern, I guess, for our church, for you, for myself, for today's church at large, is that communion has seemed to have lost its specialness, its sacredness, so much that it's kind of lost its meaning. Now, I say that because, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, but I know many of you grew up in church. I grew up in church, went to church my whole life. We had Awana badges. You wouldn't believe, ton of them, right? I did all the church things that you would do, and we always took communion. I shouldn't say always. I always grew up in a church that took it once a month, okay? There was Communion Sunday. And I really didn't know what it was all about. I just kind of knew that we did something special that day, and here's what it was. You would know it was Communion Sunday because you would come in on the back table. There would be the large, shiny dishes things, right? The big, like, containers that you hope were like meat and potatoes, but it was not that. And they had a little cross on the top, right? And so they would come around with a plate, and they would do it different times during the service, depending on the church you're at. But they would send this plate. I never liked the plate because I've got sweaty hands, okay? So when I grabbed the plate, you would see my entire handprint on the plate, and it would continue on to the next person there. And I thought it was just the shiniest plate I'd ever seen in my life. But they would pass down this plate with the ushers, right? You know, the ushers would go you know, like this, and they were waiting for it. It was just kind of like, this is just a weird deal. So it would go by, and it was this teeny little thing, okay? Now, some people have, have different traditions. You may have been, had the little, like, you know, Catholic or Lutheran. They had different things. I grew up with this dish with these tic-tac-sized pieces of something. I don't even know what it was. I guess this is what unleavened bread was because it was, like, compacted dust. And you would put it in your mouth... And immediately when you bit down, it would disappear into your gums because you only got one bite. That was all it was. Like, crunch, what happened? And it just dissolves or something. It goes into nowhere. Then the bigger trays would come where with the juice. Now, as a kid, I thought this was cool because, like, there was these teeny little cups. And it wasn't the size of the Smurf-like cup because the adults were like, you know, you're trying to figure out how to drink this thing. And so you pop it down, and you're like, did I even get any? I got more spit than I did juice. But you take communion, and you put your little cup in the seat, right? And I never did. I always stuck it in the end of my tongue and kind of flipped it around because you could. And then you always, I always broke the cup. And, you know, it's like eventually it snaps. But I always thought it was such a waste, right? You had these plastic cups. Like every week you got these things. So take communion. The thing about it is that you could go with a someone who was not a Christian, and they would still take communion. Just as they would feel guilty when the plate was passed that they needed to put, because it was completely obligatory. They felt weird, embarrassed. 
like, what are we doing? I'll just do it because I don't want to look like an idiot. And they would take it. No one's really watching them, but that's how they felt. And so that's partly why we, are, we do it this way, is so that you don't feel like an idiot for not doing it, and to recognize, which we'll talk about, that maybe you shouldn't be taking communion right now. But the reality is, we went through these routines and these rituals and this experience that I think, for the most part, were kind of meaningless. I mean, they had meaning, but it wasn't the kind of meaning it probably should have had. And the truth is, communion is a mark of the church. John Calvin and and many of the church fathers identified three marks of a church that is biblical, preaches the gospel, the pure word of God, and it does communion and baptism. So communion is a measure of a good church. You walk in and people should see you looking. You don't do this other places. This is a unique experience. It's strange. But my fear is, or I think the truth is, it's strange to even those who have been doing it for years. For years. Now, it doesn't mean that no one or any of us don't have some additional understanding of it. But I don't think we would describe it as worship. I think when we talk about worship, when someone asks, which always happens, how was worship today? Our mind automatically goes to the music and maybe more accurately, the feelings we experienced. Well, I really had a good time at worship today. I felt I could worship, or I didn't feel I could really worship today. And oftentimes, we're kind of measuring our worship by this emotional, self-centered response, as opposed to understanding that worship is supposed to be centered on God. And I don't know if communion is even enters our brain into thinking about worship in that sense. We are, I believe, missing the point that communion is the pinnacle of our experience of worship here. To ask a question like how is worship is actually quite strange. Asking how music was might be more accurate what you actually intend to mean. But for what, somehow, some way, more than worshiping through music with our voices, more than worshiping through our sermon, more than worshiping even through our giving, and more than worshiping through our fellowship, we worship particularly, uniquely, and powerfully through communion. And that's what I want to talk about today. Acts 2 reveals, Acts 2.42 in particular, but there's also an Acts 4, reveals to us that the breaking of bread was the first or one of the first things that the church began to do. So you have to ask yourself, why? Why would the church just start breaking bread in this way? It has to start somewhere. You should have an answer for why we do this. I mean, otherwise, you don't really know what you're doing. It becomes a routine, and your faith becomes just ritualistic. Welcome to being a Pharisee. Now, the short answer is that Jesus told them to. Really? Yes. Jesus told them to do this. We are obeying Jesus by doing this. We are... He instituted two sacraments. And a sacrament is just a fancy way of saying this is a visible symbol of some invisible thing, a a physical, tangible experience that is representing something spiritual that has happened. But I think even more than that, but I'll, I'll touch on that. But Jesus instructed his disciples to practice two things until he returned. One was communion and one was baptism. Now, he commanded baptism, of which Chris will talk about 
next week. He commanded baptism when he sent out the Great Commission. In other words, it's not optional. But communion was instituted by Jesus on the night before he was crucified, when he was going to be arrested, when he was betrayed by Judas. And he sat down as a Jewish man with his Jewish disciples to practice what was a Jewish feast called Passover. And I'll read it out of Luke 22, verse 14. And it's recorded in the other Gospels, but we'll record where he says, do this. It says, when the hour came, in verse 14 of chapter 22, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's been ministering with his guys for three years. He has had Passover with them every year. Something special about this one. And he said, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, of which they have no clue what he's talking about at this point. Although he's told them many times. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, I remind you that Jesus, this Jewish guy with Jewish disciples, was probably about 33 years old or so. He had practiced this same Passover meal every single year for 33 years. And however old his disciples were, so did they. This was part of the Jewish culture. It was part of the memorial of their redemption from Exodus thousands of years ago. And so for thousands of years, Jews were celebrating this feast. And then this one night, Jesus goes, boom, this is all about me, guys. And I think it's noteworthy that they don't say anything. Because they should have. Like, what? My body broke it. What are you talking about? This is a, we've been doing this for years. We've done this with you, Jesus. What, what's going on? Didn't say anything. Well, what was Passover? Well, some of you are familiar if you're with, with us with the Exodus study. But Passover was a yearly feast to the Lord that God, through Moses, instituted. It's instituted back in Exodus 12. It's where it first was given. It was right before the 10th plague. So Moses went to Egypt, said, watch out, God's coming. Let my people go. I'm not going to do it. And so plague after plague after plague wiped out Egypt, just decimated every aspect of this kingdom. Gets to the 10th plague, and right before the 10th plague, Jesus, I'm sorry, God says, look, new life. This is the new month for you. Your timeline starts now, and I want you to celebrate this feast. Each household is to take a lamb, a one-year-old male lamb without blemish, and I want you to slaughter it. I want you to take some of the blood, I want you to put it over the door, on the doorposts and the lintels, and I'm going to come through and I'm going to kill the firstborn everything. Every child, every cattle, everything. He says, if you put that blood over your door, I will pass over you and I will accept that lamb that you have killed as a substitute for not killing your firstborn. Okay. And so they do. 
And the wrath of God does pass over the Israelite homes. Now, after they had done the slaughter and wiped the blood, they're supposed to have a feast. Well, they feast on the lamb, and they are to actually eat what is called unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is bread without yeast, called matzah today. Maybe you had matzah ball soup. I've had lots of it, because my family has a Jewish side to it. And they were redeemed from Egypt, took them through the Red Sea, wiped out Pharaoh once and for all, and they became what is the nation of Israel. And he took them to Mount Sinai, gave them the law, said, here, this is the marriage, we are now covenanted together. And they proceeded forward and eventually began to wander in the wilderness because of their idolatry and other things. And Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy chapter 16 of this feast. And here's what he said. He said in Deuteronomy 16, just verses 1 a couple others after. Observe the month of Abib and give the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. So they're not putting on the doorposts anymore. They don't even have doorposts. And so they're still participating in the sacrifice. You shall, not eat, or you shall eat no leavened bread with it in seven days. You shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, symbolic. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. It's called the bread of affliction, as I said, because it was made in haste, because of how they were afflicted, and it was not given time to rise. So they w- moved out quickly. But today in Seder's, of which I think this year's is April, might be April 1st, which is strange, or March 31st, that's when it begins, and they will have the breaking of the bread as they celebrated uh, very similarly to, to this time, and this is what is said as the host breaks the bread during the Passover. And if you've never experienced this, we wanted to do it this year, we just couldn't pull it off. I've done this with my, my family because they're Jewish, and it's, it's an amazing uh, experience, but the whole time my mom is there telling me, oh, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, there's Jesus, and you know, it's pretty cool to have that experience as well. But it's also despairing because I look at all my Jewish relatives and they're still waiting for the Messiah. But the host would say this, this is the bread, as they break the bread, of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt, and let all who are hungry come and eat, and let all who are in want come and celebrate the Passover with us. May it be God's will to redeem us from all the evil and from all slavery. So, this is, in essence, what they would say. Probably not the exact words, but they're celebrating their freedom from slavery. The mercy and grace of God to save them. And Jesus says, this is my body, broken for you. And everyone says nothing. Like, what? What? So that's the bread that uh, we, we broke in symbolizing, you know, our slave. This is my body, broken for you. They didn't see it yet, but Jesus declared it. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus talked about bread. He's got a thing about bread, okay? He's connected with bread. Probably remember feeding the 5,000. I heard that story before. It takes place in John chapter 6, and it's in other gospels as well, but John 6 and after he feeds the 5,000, remember Peter um, said, hey, there's a bunch of people here, let's go get some snacks, tell these people to leave. And he's like, no, you give them some snacks, you feed them. So 
He decides to. They've got a little bit. Jesus prays over it. It gets blessed. And they go, you know, feeds 5,000 people. And so all the people are like, holy cow, this guy's special. And they want to make him king. And Jesus senses that, like, mm, don't really want to be king right now. So he kind of sneaks off and goes to a mountain by himself. Well, his disciples are there. And the people really could care less about them. But they're waiting for Jesus. So his disciples get in the boat. And they go across the Sea of Galilee. They get about halfway across, about eight miles. They go about four miles. And Jesus still hasn't come. And the people are waiting because... They want to see Jesus. Well, Jesus eventually takes a back road or something and goes across the water and meets the disciples who are in the midst of a little bit of a rough water, freaking out, and he climbs in the boat and says, quit freaking out, let's go. So they go across the lake, right? I know I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's how it goes. So, meanwhile, everyone is sitting there waiting for Jesus to come down the mountain, and he hasn't come yet, and they're like, maybe he's not coming. So they get in their boats and they follow the apostles. Now they arrive, and Jesus sees them. They see Jesus, and like, all right, and the crowds start gathering again. And Jesus, instead of saying, hey, welcome, he rebukes them. He actually rebukes them. And he tells them that you actually aren't coming for me. You're coming because your motives are you just want bread. And I'm not just a food bank, guys. I'm actually much more than that. And he begins to tell them who he is. And in John 6:47, he tells these crowds who had followed him this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and this is just part of it, so you can read the context later. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, and I am the bread of life. These people just got fed bread. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Going back, back in Exodus again. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread, Jesus, not the manna, that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he goes on to say, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood in order to have life. And even his disciples are like, huh? What kind of weird, cannibalistic, freaky stuff is this? And a lot of his disciples leave because they don't understand. They don't get it. And Jesus explains to his disciples a little bit further. So the question is, well, what does this all mean then? This bread that we partake of every Sunday. It means, I think, that if Jesus is going to tell his disciples to remember them, remember him as they break bread, that this is his body. That even earlier, that if anyone eats of his body, that they are given life, perhaps this is something more than just something we do. Perhaps it is actually, and I think true, that it is actually why we're here, and why we're here is most exemplified and experienced in this. Not in the music, not in the Bible studies, not in the sermon, not in the fellowship. Those things are wonderful and can worship God, but not like this. Not like taking communion. Not as deeply as through communion. Which brings us to Luke 24, where we started. Okay? Luke 24 is an amazing passage, one of my favorites. 
after the resurrection. They don't know this, the disciples who are walking on the road, but this is the time it's taking place. Before Jesus went and saw the 12, well, 11 disciples and some others, before he appeared to them, he appeared to these two guys on their way to a little village called Emmaus. And they are walking. And they are upset. And they are upset because they had certain assumptions and expectations for what Jesus was going to be and do. And Jesus walks up to them and he's hidden. I don't know if he's got a cloak on or a mask. He's like, you know, hide himself. I don't know what's going on. But they don't recognize him for who he is. So he's just walking along with them, right? And they're talking. He's like, what are you guys talking about? He's like, seriously? Because they're walking from Jerusalem. So this guy comes from Jerusalem. The biggest news that just happened in Jerusalem, this guy was crucified. The whole city was in an uproar about it. He's like, seriously? What, what happened? Where have you been? So they begin to tell him. It's like, well, this guy, Jesus, and we thought he was going to redeem Israel. Translated, we thought, like Egypt, he was going to overthrow Rome, be king, we were going to rule, and it was going to be awesome. And the very opposite happened. And he died in a horrible way. And all the religious leaders are the ones that, that killed him. When they're the ones who were, I thought were like supposed to tell us that he was the one. I mean, during the middle of the week, he was, Hosanna, here comes the king. And five days later, he's killed as this freak. So they're despondent. They're doubting everything they believed, everything that they thought was true. And Jesus is like, oh, really? And he proceeds to tell them, didn't you know that all these things were supposed to happen this way? And disciples even told him, yeah, we heard a report from some women, too. Now, this is biblical, okay? They didn't believe the eyewitness testimony of women was very noteworthy. So Luke records these guys going, yeah, some women came from the tomb, and they told the tomb was empty. And they weren't, like, excited, like, the tomb was empty. It's like, I don't know what Rome's doing, but his body was stolen, something. They don't say these things, but that's the assumption that something's happened. We heard this report. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. And so Jesus incognito says this in Luke 24. This all had to happen, guys. Did you read your Bibles? 24, verse 27, he says, Jesus, beginning with Moses. So Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted interpreted them what is that okay he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself let me show you how everything pointed to this everything we've always said like the whole bible is about jesus yeah it is it all points to this moment in verse 28 it says so they drew near to the village in which they were going and he acted as if he were going further. I like this. Jesus kind of like playing them, right? He's like, hey guys, have fun. I'm going to keep going, you know. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They say, no, come eat with us. So they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table, the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. 
and their eyes were open. So he breaks the bread, and their eyes are open. They're like, oh, my snarf burger. Look who it is. And they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, right? You imagine, it's like, and they're like, whoa, 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 he's gone. Dude, what, what just happened? Did what? Am I awake? You know, this is going on? And he, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour. Now, mind you, it's pitch black out now. They took a whole day to walk to where they're at. Now they're like, let's go. And they start running back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. These women aren't nutso. They have, he has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And it's a unique word they use for known there. Same word, or same root from the word recognize, to acknowledge and see. But Luke uses a particular word to talk about this intimacy, this experience of knowledge that goes beyond just, oh, it's Jesus. He says it was known to them in a unique way, breaking of the bread. And Jesus had said, I will not participate in this until the kingdom has been fulfilled. And these are guys, if you kind of get in the mindset of these guys, these are the guys who were leaving despondent, doubting, scared, unsure, not knowing what was true. This guy said he was going to be king. What is going on here? And in that moment, they see that he is king. He is risen. He is victorious. Through this breaking of the bread that they begin to recognize that all of it is true, that he has been victorious, that there is glory, and that God is in control. Now, throughout history, there's been an argument about what actually happens when someone breaks bread. Denominations, the Catholic Church, all of their own opinions, right? There's the people that say, well, when someone partakes of this bread, it actually becomes the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. It's like, whoa, 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 mystically becomes, right? Not making fun of it, but that is a belief. Other people say that it doesn't actually become the body and bread. It just has actual presence of Jesus in it. And then others just say, well, it's just symbols. It's flat-out symbols, no presence, no turning into anything. I really am not inclined to argue any of those. What I see, though, is the fact that everyone agrees that something happens. Something beautiful happens, uniquely happens in this experience that helps us to know Jesus in a way unlike anything else. Unlike our emotional response to music, unlike even praying, maybe even unlike reading Scripture, although Scripture informs us what is happening here, communion in some way is this intimate experience with our Lord. And I want to maybe flesh this out real quickly for us. Because I think that most of us, guilty as charged here, have approached these tables with a flippancy and with a dismissal of what's actually going. And if we're really flat out honest, we do it because that's what we do. 
There's not much thought going in before that time. Maybe occasionally for some of us who've just basically been broken, we've had a terrible experience with sin and we think about it. For the most part, though, as a regular practice, it's just what we do, kind of like going through the motions with singing. We don't actively engage and think, I am praising my God right now. And the way I praise my God, this omniscient, all-knowing God is going to hear that praise song forever. Kind of weird to think about. With communion, same way. So here's what I think is happening. and Here's what I believe the Bible is teaching us. First and foremost, it is a memorial, but it's more than just a memorial. It, in fact, declares our redemption from slavery to sin. It, in a way unlike anything else, is a declaration of my belief in the truth of the gospel. Because the reality is we come constantly to this gathering and in other places with doubts, with uncertainties, with is all this God stuff real? God, are you really there? This seems like just a big farce. It's foolishness. And it is in this experience where we go, there was a man who was really broken. There was a man who shed his blood. There was a man who rose from the dead. It is true, it is right, and it's through this experience we go, yes, there's more than just this. Way more. It is through this experience that we remember that the work has been done. That the work is finished. That I come to the table not because of anything I can offer. I come to the table to receive all of the work that Jesus has done. To recognize that I am broken. That Jesus knows that. He knows what I've done. He knows that I stink. He knows that I am imperfect. He knows no matter how hard I work to be good, I will never cut it. And yet, he died knowing that. We declare that. It's, it should bring us joy. It should be the most joyful thing. That's why it builds to this. We go, yes, I am so broken, but he died. And he brought healing. And he gives me new life through his resurrection. The guilt has been removed The wrath has been removed. The shame has been taken all by Him so that I can live free. And I think that we pray the prayer, confess our sins, and we get bogged down by all the brokenness and the sins that we have, not realizing that as we declare this, He suffered once for all, for everything you did, everything you're doing, and everything that you can't even imagine you're going to do. But He does. And He knows it. We've been freed from our sin. We've been saved by God's wrath. And this is a declaration of our conviction and belief that the silly, crazy story is true. That my Savior is real. That I know Him. And He knows everything there is to know about me. Even if I hide it from everyone else. He knows. And he forgives. But it's not only new life, it's, it's constantly renewed life. And I don't know about you, maybe you never 
get bogged down in sin. Maybe you never despair because you realize how broken you are. Or maybe you never get prideful because you think you're really a good person. I'm guilty of all of those. There are times when I feel like a really good person. And I go, wow, I've been a great Christian today. Pride, sinner. It's like you can't win. The truth is, there's this thing called sanctification. We're reminded of our justification. I am made right by Jesus alone. But then there's a sanctification piece. It's like, okay, what now? And that's the process where God makes you to look more and more like his son. The truth is we're redeemed. We're redeemed. We're redeemed. We're freed. But I'm a redeemed work in progress. That's true. The act of communion, unlike any other event in our lives, unlike any other time, and this is why we do it every Sunday, compels all of us to examine where our idols are. To examine the fact that we get dirty and that we must confess. The truth is, I will always love my son. Relationally, he will always be my son. He could do nothing to change that. He could do nothing to change the unconditional love I have for my son. However, he sure ticks me off sometimes. He sure does things that make it difficult to like him, though I love him. So different with God the Father. We confess and we repent. I like the idea of idols. We all kind of have our trophies, right? Our, our, I actually need a blog about this. It's the idea of having a trophy room, okay? We all think we have one trophy and we get this, man, sexual addiction, perpetual lying, Spending my money foolishly, and we're like, oh, I really got that one under hand, you know, under God's helping me with that one, and I'm processing, and I've, I've got it under control, praise Jesus. And you walk into our trophy rooms, if you will, and that's the one with the lights on it that's kind of placed in the nice little carving out of the wall. And when the lights begin to dim because God has given you grace to maybe overcome that one idol, the lights come up on all the other idols in the big room that you got. It's called everyone's idol trophy room. And we've got tons of them. And we come to the table all the time because we are always being distracted and giving our hope and our meaning and finding our joy in things other than Jesus. And this is the one time where we come and we confess. You confess other times, but we declare our righteousness in Jesus. The last couple, I'm reminded, and this is kind of what hit me this week, is that when Jesus instituted a communion... He said, take this bread and divide it among yourselves. Now, let's be honest. Most of us have approached communion as a little lunchable snack individually packaged for ourselves. This is about my relationship with you, God, and that's it. This is a shared meal. It's a family meal. There is unity in this meal we see our life as being born together, as our life growing together, as our sin affecting one another. That's why we confess to one another. Our faith works itself out together in community. Now, this is the beauty, I think, of the gospel, of the identity of God's people, because we worship together in song. And as I said before, some more than others, but by God's wonderful grace, He's given us good singers, and then He's given people like me who get blended in with all the good singers, right? 
And so it all becomes one voice we're singing together. It's beautiful. We worship together in song. We worship together through the giving of our offerings as we go. We're united together to proclaim the gospel further, to make it possible to bless people on mission together so we collect all that we have and we put it together in one thing. And we worship together through communion. It is a shared meal as I see each other, as we see each other go up, as we see each other participate, we see brothers and sisters in a very particular place. Yes, the church invisible is elsewhere. But here, us who have chosen to gather here are participating as a family. It's beautiful. Because I see, I go, you are my brother, you are my sister, and Jesus, I love you. In Jesus, because we understand that I can look at you and you can look at me and we both see that we are really messed up. But we both lift the bread together and go, but Jesus rocks. But Jesus is what brings us together. But Jesus is why I can look at you and you can look at me and I can love you despite what I see. And I can love you wanting more than what I see. It's a shared meal. And not only that, it points us, reminds us to the ultimate meal. It's a hope for something beyond even this, where we will finally sit as God's people, as the bride of Christ, at the real feast, together with Him, enjoying perfection, knowing that I will be freed from my brokenness, I will be free from the brokenness of this world. And as we lift this, we declare as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, we do this until He comes. He is coming. I don't know how many of you, and I've found myself doing it more and more as I've become a pastor. Because I see, as a pastor, to be quite frank, I just see more brokenness than I've seen before. Because it's like I'm, I'm like a magnet for it. People just share it with you. And I'm just floored by it. And it makes me more and more declare Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And savor and look forward to the day when Jesus comes back and puts it all right and exacts justice and loves his people in a way, face to face, unlike we've experienced, but we experience in some way here. In other words, communion is much more than this meaningless routine. It is supposed to be a sacred experience and meal that means something. And not only are we memorializing this death and this resurrection, we are proclaiming it, and we're not only proclaiming it, we're actually participating in it. We are saying, I have been cleansed. It is the way that we know God. It is a, it is a mystery. There is a mystical mystery to it, and it's awesome. And it is the way that we participate and get nourishment to get on in life, to get new life, to get renewed life. That we come to the table and say, I've got the doubts, I've got the brokenness, I'm screwed up, I'm struggling. Every week we come. And it is what we come for, to celebrate the truth. Because it's very easy to believe the lies that tell us something different, that cause us both to despair and be prideful. It is together that we take the bread 
in unity and affirm Jesus' love for us and the blessings that come from it. Together, all at once, we declare that we are sinful and Jesus died for sinners and we have faith that Jesus, not my work, will cleanse me from my sins. It is a meal that's both joyful, that gives us power for victory. We are both thankful and we look around with a shared experience as we have love for one another rooted in love for God. And I'll close this way. We take communion every Sunday together. And you always have the choice to take communion. We don't pass the plate so that people don't feel compelled to have to do it. But let me give you a really strong warning. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to a church that's really messed up and they're participating in community in their gatherings and it's not going very well. In fact, it's full of sin. And he says basically that how you take communion and if you take communion matters. It matters. Okay? I don't know what you've done up to this point in your participation of communion, but it matters. And he writes this. He said in verse 27 of chapter 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty, will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I don't know how many of us actually believe that verse, but I'm asking you to believe it today, starting today and continuing. If you are not a Christian, if you have not accepted that Jesus didn't just die as a humble guy living a life of service, but he died in your place as your substitute because you deserve death for your sins and He died and your sins and your life were buried with Him and He rose again and gives you new life, if you don't believe that, don't take communion. And please, don't feel weird. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel ashamed. I pray by the grace of God and the power of God that you will believe. But if you do not, do not take it. This is for the family. This is a family meal. If you are an unrepentant Christian, an unrepentant Christian, don't take communion. What's an unrepentant Christian? Someone who is actively pursuing sin as opposed to pursuing God. But I sin. Yeah, so do I. But I confess and I repent when I do. And I call you to confess and to repent of your sin. 1 John 1, 9, written to believers, says, Confess your sins, and He is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you. We get dirty. The difference is for people walking in the light and walking in the darkness, people walking in the darkness pretend they're not dirty. People walking in the light say, I'm dirty, forgive me, cleanse me. If you are an unrepentant Christian, do not take communion. Heed Paul's warning. The reality is, 
Yes, you are a brother and sister in Christ if you're a Christian, but you and Dad are not on speaking terms, and you need to resolve that through confession. Period. And if you are a Christian out of unity with the family, if you have issues with another Christian, a brother, a sister, a husband, a wife, a leader, a member, make it right. Do not take communion until you have proceeded towards restoration as much as that depends upon you. I realize that there's some things that are out of your control, that you ask for forgiveness, you confess, and that's where you leave it. But that's your responsibility, and then take communion. And for those of us who basically are repentant Christians, who live a lifestyle of repentance, doesn't mean we don't sin, it means we're the ones that admit we're messed up. And we are constantly pursuing God as stumbling and broken as their journey is. Come and feast. Feast on all that God has done and is doing for you. Let it cleanse you. Let it bring renewed life to you. Let you leave here feeling as if you have worshipped the holy God who loves you and has called you and is carrying you through this messed up world. Feast. Let this be what fills you. Nothing else. Let God be the one that fills you, that gives you joy, that gives you hope, and that makes you look forward to Him coming back again more than anything. Feast. Don't just go through the ritual. Don't just go through the routine. You are a chosen child of God, set apart by God as a family member who is loved by the God of the universe, who knows the name of every, every single star, billions of them, has named them. He knows your name. Embrace that. Find joy in that. Celebrate that. Let's pray. Father God, we declare Your glory. And right now, Lord, we worship You not only through song. We don't worship You only through the declaration of Your Word. We don't worship You only through the giving of what we have been given by You. But we worship You, Father, because of what You have done on the cross. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will compel all of us to examine our hearts, recognizing that we will never be right on our own, that we bring nothing to the table, but we are made right by the blood of Jesus. I pray that no one today, Father, will partake of communion wrongly, but as they lift up the bread, your body, Father, is broken, Jesus' body broken for us, his blood shed for us in the wine, I pray, Lord, that we will honor that, that we will truly believe that that it gives us new life, that it renews us, and that it is a shared experience, ultimately leading to true joy. May you be honored by how we take communion today. Amen.